0: Hello, and thank you for joining me today here on Bible Studies with Russ. We are picking up today in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, In our last study, we covered chapters 8 and 9, and as we look at chapter 10, there are, like any book, there are any material you look at, there are different breakups and headings that are given. Uh, The one I have here before me is entitled The Strong Angel, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, looking at the idea how God will complete his purpose. And a larger heading I have here, beginning in chapter 10, is the certainty of the end, uh, the visions, and the first being the strong angel here. In chapter 10, verses 1 uh, through 7, and then in chapter 8, we have uh, the bittersweet, the little book, and and the prophet John, and we'll look more at these headings as we get into this. But let's go ahead and continue by looking at uh, Revelation chapter 10, looking at verse 1. Okay, so verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10 says, And I I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Uh, So we have here again uh, this angel being pictured here clothed in a cloud, uh, as he says there in verse 1, and a rainbow upon his head. This indicates... Uh, The glory that surrounds the throne of God, uh, clothed with a cloud, Uh, such surrounds heavenly beings ascending and descending from heaven. The rainbow upon his head and his feet as pillars of fire remind us of the description of the Lord and show the brilliance of such a being. Verse 2 says here, And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Little may, may mean a part or a fragment of God's whole purpose. One foot on the sea and the land means His message is for the whole earth. We understand this verse more in verse eleven. The sea and the land is, uh, uh, the sea and the land is a Old Testament formula for all the earthly things. Um, Sorry, I had a typo here in my notes. So let me second for what I was trying to say, but the sea and land here is a is a formula for in the Old Testament for all earthly things. Uh, we also can find this in Exodus twenty, verses verse four, and also in verse eleven of Exodus twenty. Uh, looking at verse three, the Bible says here, uh, "And cried the loud voice, as when the lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices." A lion's roar is often used as a symbol of God's message in the Old Testament, Amos chapter three and verse eight. The seven churches are introduced, <clears throat> are introduced here in verse three. The seven thunders uttered their. Uh, yes, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Let me check here. My other notes here the seven thunders or sometimes some some say the seven churches are introduced here uh and the new American center says the peals of thunder spelled p-e-a-l-s uh, and this activity would have the command would, would command everyone's attention looking at verse four says here now when the seven thunders utter their voices i was about to write but i heard a voice from heaven saying to me seal up the things which the seven th- seven thunders uttered and do not write them And so uttering means they spoke their message. Before John begins to write, he is told to seal up what what he heard. There are are other examples of this message being, of a message being forbidden to be written. Daniel 12, verses 4 and verse 9, and St. Corinthians 12 and verse 4. And so in Psalm uh, 29, thunder is referred to as the voice of the Lord. And this idea actually occurs several times in the scriptures. Job 26, 14, Job 37, 5 and John chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Uh, To seal up the message means do not write it. And like we said before, there are other examples of this. That's what I mentioned there in in Daniel 12 and 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4. Uh, Next, looking at verse 5, "...the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised raised up his hand to heaven, and swore by him..." We're going to look at 5 and 6 together here. "...and swore by him who lives forever..." He created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. So he raised hands, a customary gesture many times for taking an oath. Time no longer means there will be no more delay in carrying out and fulfilling God's promise to complete his purpose. Um... Notice here, he created all these things. He created heaven and the things that they're in. He created the earth and the things that they're in. And he created the sea and the things that are are in. Uh, making it very clear who we're talking about here. Um, and I love, you know, sometimes we, we read things like that. We think, well, that sounds repetitive. Or, okay, we get the picture. No, it's very clear that God made everything. Every aspect of every realm, so to speak. That you, if you don't use that term, we're talking about sea and land and air. Um, God created all of it all of it. And Genesis 1 reminds us that he did so by simply speaking those things into existence. And we know this because we serve a great and awesome God. Looking at verse 7, of Revelation chapter 10. But in the days of the surrounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the apostles, as he declared to me to his servants the the prophets, I said apostles, prophets. (laughs) Let's read that again. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, Whatever God has revealed in accordance to the gospel can be depended upon. <clears throat> the mystery being revealed might have two ex- explanations. First, in the completeness of the New Testament, that which has been a mystery has been revealed and is being written down, Ephesians 3, 3 and 4. Or it may mean when God's purposes have played themselves out and, and have come to, to the end of time. He has declared to his servants the prophets means he has revealed it to New Testament prophets or teachers. Looking at verses eight through eleven together, we have here the heading, <clears throat> the heading of uh, John eats the little book or the little book and the prophet John. Uh, another heading I have here is the bittersweet. Uh, verses eight through eleven is God's promises and judgments make up the bittersweet. Verses eight through eleven. Uh, here the Bible says, "I'm going to read. I'm going to read all these together. Verses eight through eleven. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again." And said, "'Go take the little book, which is which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth.' So I went to the angel and said to him, "'Give me the little book.' And he said to me, "'Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet honey in your mouth.' And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, "'You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings.'" And so go is a command to go and retrieve the book there in verse eight. Verse nine eat up means to fully understand. We find the same idea in Ezekiel chapter two verses nine through chapter three and verse three. There will be a mixture of bitter and sweet in what he says. God's promises and God's judgments uh, will make up the bitter sweet. We find from verse ten that bitter indicates the judgments and warnings regarding sin, evil and rebellion. Indeed, a bitter end awaits those who, who did not and do not heed God's will. Sweet shows the mercy, love, and gracious provisions of God's redemption for men. As we look at verse 11, we reminded Isaiah is told that he, he was willing to have a hard going to have a hard time prophesying to the people, but he must. The same is true with Jeremiah. Prophesy again indicates this message will be needed many times, not just the Roman Empire of the first century. Now, I want to make a couple mentions here about the number 7 and also about the number 12, as I have here in my notes, before we get into uh, chapter 11 of Revelation. Um, <clears throat> the number 7. 7 was sacred among various people. There were seven days of creation. <clears throat> Excuse me, Passover and tabernacles were two seven-day festivals. The New Year, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles were all in the seventh month. Seven days was the period of ordination of priests and consecrations of altars, Exodus 29, through 37 The number of altars was often seven. The number of victims for sacrifice was often seven. The furnishings of the temple contained seven branched candlestick or lampstand. Uh, Samson had seven locks, which is believed to be connected to the, with the Nazarite vow. There are many other examples. Joshua marched around Jericho for seven days and then seven times on the seventh day. Naaman dipped seven times in the River Jordan. Of the deceptions of Samson involved seven rawhide bolsterings. There were, there were the seven-day and seven-year periods of famine and plenty. Weddings were normally seven days long. <clears throat> so those are roughly, uh, I think I have there 10 or maybe 11 uh, examples that are concerning the number seven. About the number 12... The divisions of the lunar years is composed of 12 months. There were the 12 tribes of Israel, enough to give its religious significance. The 12 tribes, princes of Israel, are mentioned in Genesis 17, verse 20. 12 apostles are prominent in the New Testament. Heaven has, quote, 12 gates. Um, Turn this here. There were 12 kings of, uh, excuse me, 12 kinds of fruit on the tree of life. And then you have the 12 legions of angels. So, just some things to consider about the number 12. Now, uh, numbers 11, actually, the number 7 and the number 12. So, now we're going to get into chapter 11. Chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Um, This chapter expresses the protection and security of God's people in the midst of persecution and suffering. Uh, Particularly when the beast, that is the dragon's uh, agent, will persecute God's people. Now, as we get more and more into the book of, especially now as we're getting more into the Heavily heavily uh, figurative sections, we're getting now into the beast because we know there's a lot of ideas about the beast. There's a lot of ideas about the dragon, uh, you know, things such as that. And so a lot of figurative language. And so just a reminder, as we go through this, there are heavy figures of of language used, heavy uh, figurative images that are used. And so we need to be mindful of that as we go through this. Okay, Revelation chapter 11, looking at verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, <clears throat> Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Measuring has a threefold purpose. One is for building or rebuilding, as we find in Zechariah chapter 2, 1 through 3, Jeremiah 31, 39, and Ezekiel 4, verses 3 and verse 6. You also have <clears throat> measuring for the purpose of measurement of destruction, 2 Kings 21, 13, Isaiah 34, 11, Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. And then you also have the third purpose being the preservation and protection, as in uh, peril, 2 Samuel 8, verse 2. The church is being preserved from the overthrow of the wicked and amounts uh, to the same thing as the sealing of the 144,000, which we'll talk more about later. The temple or sanctuary here is a true spiritual building of the church, 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Uh, Notice the ones in sanctuary are safe. They receive the protection of the Lord. He says here in verse 1, going back to Revelation 11, verse 1, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Uh, And those who worship there, verse 1. Verse 2 says, But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The holy city is Jerusalem. This is seen many times throughout scripture. The conflict referred to is the same as in Luke twenty-one, twenty 20-24, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The 42 months is a period which the holy city was to be trampled underfoot. This could be symbolic of the entire period of the Roman war against the Jews. Uh, this period began in the spring of AD 667. A.D. sixty-seven, rather, and lasted until the fall of A.D. of uh, until the fall of A.D. seventy, almost exactly forty-two months. No doubt, the message is clear: the holy city will be trampled for a period of time by evil men. The court, the world, as we find in verse two, is not measured. Verse three: and I will give power to my witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. The two witnesses are discussed in, in verses three through fourteen. As we'll continue on here, these two witnesses remind us of Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Sackcloth, excuse me, sackcloth indicates repentance. Other ideas have been presented about the two witnesses. Some have referred to these, referred these to the law and prophets. Some have referred to, me, some have referred these to the Old and New Testaments. Okay, verses four and five. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands setting before the God of the the earth. And we're going to be verse 5 here together as well. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from from their mouth and devours their enemies. If he wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. The two witnesses are now called olive trees and two lampstands. In Zechariah 4, we have two olive trees, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel, and the lampstand, Israel. In this, word, in this verse, it would seem the olive trees feed the lamp, and the lamps give light. These witnesses represent the church bearing light to the world, like the fire in the words of Jeremiah, the devouring fire, the judging world. Excuse me, the judging word will destroy those who oppose the church and righteousness, as we find in Jeremiah 5:14 and 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. So again, these are figurative of what? Of God's Word being in devouring fire, and those who oppose it are going to face the wrath of God. If not, uh, you know, we know many times that happened in the Old Testament, literally, but also ultimately, those who rebel against God's Word will face His wrath by the hands of His Son on the judgment day. Looking now at verse 6. <clears throat> These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the, in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues, as often as they desire. Elijah closed up the heavens that it did not rain. Also Moses in the first plague, the devouring fire came down at the call of Elijah and consumed the enemy. First Kings one verses nine and following. What these witnesses do shows what God shows what God wills and what he desires, and the judgment of those who do not respect what is right. Okay, looking now at verse seven. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. The beasts overcame them, the witnesses are killed. This is accomplished by the beast from the bottomless pit. Now, Let's think, let me look at this a little more closely for a second as we think about this beast. The beast, the enemy of God, overcame the two witnesses. They are killed. Uh, the verb here, ascends, as we find here in verse 7, uh, ascends is a present tense verb which indicates continuous action. We know for a fact that the forces of evil continually arise to oppose the truth. God never promised that his people would not be persecuted or, and even killed for the cause of Christ. The details on who this beast is will be will be seen later in chapter thirteen, uh, but we know that at this point we can say that these are definitely those forces which are against all Christians, and they are rising to fight against the truth. Uh, this persecution and murder is accomplished by the beast from the bottomless pit. This anti-Christian, if you want to use that term, uh, force against uh, is coming up and and rising up against uh, Christians and and uh, persecuting them. We have seen this picture played out many times in history. Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and many Christians have been killed, but not the truth uh, to which they testified. No one is able to kill the truth. You can silence the messenger, but you cannot silence the message. Looking now at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem had become as bad as Sodom, but here the reference may simply be to the anti-Christian forces that are in the world. Jerusalem, uh, the word here spiritually, is variously translated as allegorically or figuratively, which clearly shows that figurative language is being used. It's interesting, we literally have here in verse 8 the words here, the great city which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. And exactly, that is, There's the scripture literally says this is figurative, that they are like Sodom and Egypt. They're not literally Sodom and Egypt, but they're like them. It's figurative. Well, why should we be surprised when we see other figurative language here? So that's just a reminder, really, to us that there's so much figurative language here to consider as we look at the book of Revelation. Okay, verse 9 and 10. Then those from the peoples... Tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. We can compare this to Galatians 4 and verse 16 as well. Uh, King after king in the Old Testament considered the prophet of God an enemy because he told them the truth. Preachers and faithful Christians can be tormented uh, by people today uh, because they're simply telling them the truth. Tormented, hated, ridiculed, and the list goes on and on. Verses 11 and 12 of Revelation says here, Now after three and a half days, uh, the breath of of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, saying to them, Come up, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Now, in the Old Testament, Elijah ascended into, in the chariot into heaven. The ultimate victory is to be caught up to God. Uh, God raised the witnesses from the dead, and they stood upon their feet. We find the same idea in Isaiah 40, verse 8. After three days and a half, so a shorter period, shorter period of time, as compared with the three and a half years of verse 3, verse 3, uh, great fear fell upon them. And you can imagine what impact uh, this had on the, the ones who murdered them? Um, the ultimate victory, again, is to be caught up to God. If, if the ones who killed them were frightened to see them walking up walking again, think of what would happen when they saw the witnesses ascending up to heaven in a cloud. Now, this could be... Uh, this most likely is figurative of the, those who have been slain for the cause of Christ still having, the great, still having the victory in the end. They will go to be with God and with Christ and all the faithful, while those who have persecuted them will be left behind. Christians will always have the victory. Verse 13 says, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so the enemies are are judged here in verse 13. Those who were separating were now dying in the quake. Um, The breaking up of the old pagan life, which was uh, no doubt uh, there expanding throughout Jerusalem, was now being very broken up very much dramatically. The enemies are judged, condemned, and lost, but the ones who gave glory to God were saved. Of men is names of men. So we see there in verse 13. in the tenth, of the city, in the great city, in the, in the earthquake, seven thousand people were killed. The King James says here um, says says uh, in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. Uh, so <clears throat> the of men is just men. In the New King James, it simply says seven thousand people were killed. It was now too late for them to repent. But seven and one thousand stands for completeness meaning that it was too late for them to repent. You can't repent after you're dead. Verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So uh, let's look at verses 14 and 15 together here as I have this in my notes. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. These, and the seventh angel sounded, and there, was, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the spiritual kingdom of Christ now stands alone where once had stood the physical worldly kingdom of men. Again, spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom is a reference to the church. Christ is not coming to build his kingdom in the physical sins here on the earth. The Bible does not tell us that. He has not come to be king over a kingdom on the earth. He is reigning now in the church. He is over the church. The church is his kingdom. Uh, Christ had already begun His reign over His kingdom. Colossians 1, 12, and thirteen, Christ rules over His kingdom and will always do so. In the end, the wicked are punished and the faithful are exalted. He, what did Christ do in verse thirteen? He punished the wicked. Thus, these verses show us Christ, uh, that Christ's ultimate victory, uh, Christ's ultimate victory over the wicked. Okay, let's look at verses 16 through 19, and then we're going to stop today. I don't want to really do more than two chapters at a time. Um, Verse 16 through verse 19 says, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, 'We We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned the nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the, of the dead, that they should be judged, and they should, and that they should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. It would appear that this is happening at the last judgment. He rewards the faithful as promised in the gospel. He inflicts his judgment against those who have rebelled against God. The saints have been rewarded, and the sinners destroyed in a devil's hell. The ark of the covenant represented the presence of God, a great source of comfort in Old Testament times, and the ark of his te- and the ark of his testament, uh, and the ark of his testament to Christians today. Now. We are going to stop there. So we end in chapter 11 with a, a reminder what awaits uh, the faithful and the wicked on the final day, judgment. Judgment from Christ. The, he is the judge. He is the one who will stand judging all mankind. As we are reminded later in the book of Revelation, but we are going to stop there today. Again, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can contact me through Bible Studies of the Rust, the Facebook page, or you can contact me through Bible Way Media, our website, BibleWayMedia.org. I do thank you for being here with me today. hope you have found this study encouraging, and not only interesting, but encouraging. I would also encourage you to share this with others and to listen to other programs here on Bible Way Media. If you haven't already, I would encourage you to visit our website, BibleWayMedia.org to not only find out more about us, but also to find more programs you can listen to and be encouraged by as well. I do thank you for listening. I hope to see you again next time.